Cortland Computer Services presents the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Hi there, Don Wardlow here, your baseball lifer in residence. And is it snowing where you are? Has it been snowing where you are? (laughs) My goodness, we've certainly had enough snow where I record these programs, but all over the country seems like they've had either extreme snow or extreme cold weather. And that's usually the last time you think about baseball. But we've got a podcast here, the Baseball Lifer podcast. I'm going to have a couple of guests, David Lutz and Rob Nelson, a couple of extraordinary gentlemen. They took our game, baseball, and took it and played it in South Africa in the early 1970s when American athletes wouldn't consider playing in South Africa. In fact, the 1976 Olympics nearly had a lot of countries pulling out in protest to South Africa and their their racial policy. These guys played baseball down there even before the 1976 Olympics. So we'll chat with them in a little while. Before then, I'll give you a couple of things we had planned before we found out about Bud Harrelson's death. And we broke format to do a show last week entirely in his memory. The Mets have signed a couple of guys for 2024. Outfielder Harrison Bader, who used to play for the Yankees, among others. And pitcher Sean Manea, who a couple of years ago threw a no-hitter. You know, how much of that Sean Manea the Mets will get, I don't know. Another thing we meant to do last week and didn't because of our Bud Harrelson tribute, we didn't do an announcer of the week, although you certainly got to hear a couple of Bob Murphy gems that had to do with Bud Harrelson, but we didn't do an actual announcer of the week. And so we'll present one this week. I've said that sometimes our announcer of the week will be a Hall of Famer, sometimes not. The first one wasn't. That was the Indians' Tom Manning from the 1930s. But this man definitely is in the Hall of Fame. And it's Joe Garagiola. He was a catcher with the Cardinals and Pirates, Cubs and Giants. When he was done playing ball, he broadcast first for the Cardinals. Then he joined NBC TV and radio. He did two World Series on the radio in the 60s, one with Ernie Harwell in 1963 and one with Byram Sam in 1965. Joe Garagiola joined the Yankees broadcast crew for three seasons, 1965, 6, and 7. With the Yankees, he called Mickey Mantle's 500th home run. He left the Yankees after the 67 season went exclusively with NBC, did television mostly. He did some radio, and one of his radio calls is what you're going to hear. It's from the 19, 
75 World Series Game 3. The Boston Red Sox are taking on the Cincinnati Reds in Cincinnati at Riverfront Stadium. What I want you to focus on is what Joe Garagiola says about the byplay between the catcher and the pitcher. Johnny Bench is about to come up to home plate, and the catcher, Carlton Fisk, for the Red Sox, goes out to the mound to talk to pitcher Rick Wise. And Joe Garagiola provided an insight that a fellow like me who never did play the game couldn't possibly add. And so this is what Joe Garagiola had to say before Johnny Bench stepped to home plate and what happened once Bench stepped into the batter's box. Oh, Perez draws the base on balls, and here is Johnny Bench. Bench bounced out his first time up, and now Fisk wants to talk to Wise. And you can almost assume what he's saying. He said, look, the first time up, you threw a high curveball that you got away with. You throw one this time, he's liable to tear out a row of seats in the upper deck. So be sure you get your curveball now. He's a good fastball hitter. Try to keep it outside. If you keep it inside, tear out a row of seats for you. You tell that to a pitcher enough, pretty soon he says, whose side are you on? Two balls and one strike. Crown is alive. Johnny Bench waits now. Listen to him. Two outs. Here's the pitch. High fly ball, deep way back to this ball. is out of here. The Cincinnati bench has just gone absolutely bananas as Johnny Bench gets the first hit of this ball game for Cincinnati, and he took care of the no-hitter and the shutout and the lead all with one swing of the bat. Johnny Bench, a home run over the left field fence. Joe Garagiola described that home run. The Reds would go on and win that game in extra innings by a 6-5 to five final. Garagiola would stay with NBC as long as they had baseball. He covered World Series with Vince Scully on the TV side after he stopped doing radio. And after NBC lost the rights to baseball, Joe Garagiola was a part-time broadcaster with the expansion Arizona Diamondbacks. He did that from 1998 until 2012, and that was all long after he had won the Ford C. Frick Award and gotten enshrined in Cooperstown in 1991. And now Joe Garagiola's grandson, Chris, is a part-time broadcaster for the Arizona Diamondbacks. He's a young fellow at 30. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page for his very own. Not yet. But one day, he'll be somebody's full-time broadcaster. I've heard him. I like him a lot. When we come back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, we'll have our guests, Dave Lutz and Rob Delson, talk about baseball in South Africa, and they'll talk about Big League Chew. Rob, in particular, had a lot to do with that. That's yours if you keep it where it is. I am having such a problem at work. This is the second time this month I have had two computers down and I can't get my computer company to come to the office and fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies. You know, I was having the same problem until we met 
Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when the computers are not working properly. I need somebody that can come out, see what's wrong, and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They have been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860. courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about it on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of computer services. Back with you on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don Wardlow here and my guests, Dave Lutz and the Rob Nelson, are a couple of guys who played baseball here in the U.S. of A. and then played baseball in a country that you probably wouldn't believe they ever heard of baseball, and that is South Africa. And I mean South Africa in the 1970s. I mean before... Jerry Cotilla won the heavyweight championship of the world shortly after a time when there were protests made because of South Africa and their political bent. So the gentlemen who are with me are Dave Lutz and Rob Nelson. Guys, hello and welcome. Good to be here. Now, let me Pleasure know. Pleasure to be here. Sure. Now, let our audience know which one of you is which. I'm Rob. I'm Dave. Before the South Africa venture, uh, what did each of you do in baseball as fans and as players and anything else you may have done? Go for it, Rob. Well, I uh, I grew up on Long Island. Uh, I ended up at Cornell University. I pitched there for a couple of years, and then I took off for Cape Town, South Africa, thanks to Dave Lutz. Uh, Dave can tell you his story. He was a big star in the uh, Ithaca area, had a chance to go to South Africa as a Rotary Exchange student and discovered they had baseball down there. And I'm grateful that he did because Dave made such an impression on the team down there and the organization down there that they asked him to find somebody else to come out and maybe uh, be a part of the fun as well. That's how Dave and I became friends. That's how I ended up in Cape Town. Uh, for me, Cape Town was the first of many stops. I went back there. I started in the 70s. I played three seasons in the 80s and then two seasons in the 1990s. So I got to see the political change basically from the dugout, uh, which was fascinating. But I owe so much to Dave Lutz simply because he was an adventurous 17-year-old and uh, decided to go to Cape Town. And uh, he brought along a guy about five years his senior. And uh, I can't tell you, we'll talk about it more, but how much Dave Lutz has meant to me and to many other people. My baseball life was kind of, it's the vehicle I used to see the world and make friends and end up teaching school and becoming uh, 
a minor league businessman. So I'll leave the rest to Dave Lutz. He's got a better story than I do. <laughs> and Dave, I got to jump in and say this. You had to be quite the young salesman because at the age of 21, it was all I could do to get my parents to let me go with my broadcast partner to Marietta, Ohio. And that's only about 450 miles away. How in the world did you sell your family on you going to distant South Africa? Yeah, it is. It is an amazing story and it's fun to tell. When I was selected, well, let's go back to baseball in, in high school just for a moment. I played, we had very short seasons in high school. I was in the varsity team from from my freshman year as a second baseman, except, uh, you know, on a very crucial game with our neighboring rivals, uh, not far from Ithaca, actually. Uh, they brought me in in the last inning. A senior had got into trouble. I'm a freshman. My uniform doesn't fit. It's baggy and hanging off me. And uh, I get out on the mound. My brother's playing shortstop, and he was the head honcho baseball player. He was a mini god in our community as a baseball player. And uh, I had a guys on first and second, two outs, and their best batter coming up. Or the, in the second batter would be the best batter. Long story short, I threw a ball in the dirt, and they all moved over to second and third. Oh, so, yeah, it was the same pit batter. But then the catcher, you know, and my brother's saying from oh, shortstop, come on, babe, come on, come on, you kid. My nickname was kid. Hum, you babe, kid. You know, he's really going all out with the, the psych. And the catcher who knew me, good for, well, small town, everybody knew each other. And he said, throw the sinker. And, uh, and I did. And it was awesome. And I struck the guy out. And I'm a hero. I mean, this was the neighbors. This clinched the championship for the season my first varsity pitching experience but anyway i continued to play ball in high school uh very as i said very short seasons we won a lot of the league titles uh i found my my groove as a pitcher and then of course we had legion baseball we played more legion games in two months than we did in the whole of the baseball season and i began to find my form but I wasn't really, I wasn't fanatically committed to baseball, like my brother, for example. I didn't study, eat, sleep, and drink it. I just had pretty good talent. In the middle of all this, by the way, when I was 15, I tried out for the Cincinnati Reds just for the fun of it. And it, uh, I was trying out as a second baseman, not as a pitcher. I was only 15 years old. Sure. And, and uh, they were hitting hard ground balls to deep short where every infielder was other than first base had to be there. So the first ball they hit, I threw it right into the back of the mound, incredibly embarrassing. And my brother, of course, is standing there with a the group of shortstops saying, come on, Dave, come on, kid, you can do it. You know, this usually thing. So I thought, well, what the heck? I'm just going to let it rip. And I uh, uh, fielded all the rest of them well, and I gunned it over to first. I had a pretty good arm. And I got picked for the all-star team for that particular tryout. My brother didn't, and he had a scholarship to Florida, Florida State. Wow. Anyway, but I never heard another word from them, and I quite honestly never thought about it. A, long, a little added bit to the story is when I was same year, I got hit in the head with a baseball. I was a pretty good batter. I was batting about 600 that season. Guy threw a curve that didn't break. I stayed in the box. He hit me in the side of the head, mm -hmm. and I tore a hole in my retina, the same as Tony Kinniglier, exactly the same injury that he had. So I lost my depth perception. Uh, 
and I had to leave second base and just concentrate on pitching. Well, then we get to the senior year and I get selected as an exchange student to South Africa. And I went out there, uh, basically, I knew a bit about the area because we'd had an exchange student in our home, but I decided that I was gonna let my very conservative hair down and be a pain in the butt to the school, the family, the Rotary Club. And by about the third, second month, Oh, in the middle of all this, in the in the second month, the president of the baseball federation, or in South Africa, national president, was in the Rotary Club that I was sponsored by. Uh, now, this was a one-year gig. This was I'm supposed to go for a year, come home, and go to college. But the Rotary Club guy, the president, uh, you remember in Berezovsky, yeah, Rob? And uh, Arthur, Arthur was a great guy. You know, Wonderful sure, man. Was, sure was. And he found out that I played baseball and I'd brought a rubber coated ball with me to throw off a wall to keep practicing. I brought my cleats. I brought my spikes, I mean, and my glove and a hat and a jersey. And that was it. But then he persuaded me to join a local club. And what happened? It was really funny. In the first practice game, it was they call them friendlies there at the University of Cape Town. Uh, I got the, suddenly the three major newspapers arrived. I can tell the names, but it won't matter. And they had their cameras flashing and their pens poised. And they asked me this simple question, can you throw a knuckleball? And uh, I, I, you know, they had heard that nobody can hit a knuckleball, you know? And so of course I said, yeah, I can throw a knuckleball. I didn't say I can't hit the broadside of a barn with a knuckleball, <laughs> but sure, anybody can throw one. Anyway, next day headlines, New York knuckler arrives in Cape Town, you know, and so <laughs> it, it was really that kind of set the scene for the fact that, you know, I had something to offer. Anyway, longer bit of the story, the, the Rotary Club decided to send me home. I became such a pain in the butt and instead sent me to a Christian camp. And it was there that I had heard about uh the gospel and christian commitment and that's where things changed for me and i made that commitment which really changed my perspective uh but baseball was still the thing for me i that's that's what i did and when i made the province team with the all read the provincial all-star team that really i mean there was a there was a reporter from the cape times jim kidman rob knows him he 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 promoted baseball so much on the back pages of the or in the sports section and every day it seemed like he was putting a picture writing a story that just pushed the game well good news for me i guess is you know my name was there a lot and uh uh and i got a lot of visibility and it gave me a chance to share with teenagers and others on the other christian side but last point on this is that i'll cut it if you want to come back to it i will two things happened um, number one, they decided to organize a, a special all-star game because the owner of the Detroit Tigers was in town on vacation. It was in November of that year, and that's at summer, beginning of summer over there. He was in town. They found out, Jim Kidman found out about it, invited him to the game, got him to throw out the first ball. I got to pitch three innings. I faced 11, struck out nine, you know, whatever. It was a good day. Great, awesome southeast wind. And I got called to the press box afterwards, again, with all the cameras and the pens poised to write. And and uh, John, uh, John Fetzer walked up to me and shook my, he walked to me, shook his my hand right quite dramatically. And he said, son, you got a mighty fine curveball. I said, well, thank you, sir. And he said, well, you know, I got an, I got a plan for you. 
okay, what's that? He said, I want you in Tiger Town in February for spring training. Wow. And I, you know, I don't know why I said, Rob, you're going to, you, Rob wanted to shoot me when I told him this story before. But anyway, I said to him, I'm sorry, sir, but I'm going to have to finish my exchange year uh, before I can make a commitment like that. And he didn't say anything more other than, but Jim Kidman on the next day on the back page of the sports section was a stupid American turns down pro offer, <laughs> you know? So, but anyway, long story, longer story short, I continued for that year sent all the clippings I could imagine back to my father. Uh, he, with my high school record, Legion record, and with the South African thing. I mean, there I'm a stud superstar. Back in Trumansburg, New York, I, you know, I'm pretty good, but, you know, nothing special. Lots of kids like me. So uh, I sent all the clippings back. And by the time I'd arrived back home in the U.S. in the June the following year, he had secured a full sight unseen scholarship at Ohio University. And at the same time, I had a tryout with the Kansas City Royals Baseball Academy, and they selected me for the academy. Only 200 boys in the country were going to be picked. And, uh, and I said no to both of them and went back to South Africa to promote the game. And that's where Rob comes in, the, not that year, but the following year. So we're on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don Wardlow here. Dave Lutz is who's been talking. And Rob Nelson you mentioned that Dave brought you to South Africa. Tell me about your experiences there. You, ha you had to start with kind of a jolt because you're able to play baseball in November, December, because it's well, a whole different climate there. Don't want to don't want to interrupt Don, but we played from September till June. That's yeah. amazing. I didn't know the yeah. climate was that good. Yeah. It was fantastic. As luck would have it, the fact that Dave decided, uh, I would say, probably maturely and wisely to not pursue professional baseball, but continue uh, another path. It's the only reason I ended up in Cape Town, because all those clippings that he sent to his dad uh, went to good use. Because <laughs> I overheard two guys talking baseball uh, at the Someplace Else Tavern in Ithaca, New York. I was in... <laughs> I was in graduate school and uh, uh, really didn't have much of a future. I, I had a three-week opportunity in extended spring training with the St. Louis Cardinals based on uh, just a, a late dream. I only had one good year pitching in college, my last year at Cornell, and I thought that maybe I'd get a shot. But I didn't throw hard enough and, and my curveball wasn't good enough for, for any major league team to draft me. So I started picking up tennis because I thought my baseball life was over. And uh, there I am in Ithaca. I overhear these two Ithaca college guys, and I don't say a word because they were talking about a job opportunity and a baseball opportunity in Cape Town. The next morning, I called the Cornell coach, Ted Thorne, uh, who was my coach through my career at Cornell. And I said, what do you know about Cape Town baseball? And he said, as a young ball player, sent some stuff to a lot of the schools here, uh, uh, Colgate, Cornell, Syracuse. Uh, Dave's dad did because David sent information to his dad. Uh, the club varsity old boys was looking for, for a replacement, a replacement for Dave Lutz. So I went and interviewed with Mr. Lutz and saw all those clippings. And I said, this is for me. And luckily for me, Dave's dad agreed. He said, Rob, I think you'd be a perfect fit there. So I show up in October of 1973, not having pitched for over two years competitively. And 
it's a funny thing when you're young, you think your stuff is better than it is. I start striking people out, which I never did in college, and hitting balls that I never hit when I was in college. And I assumed that I was a late bloomer. Not that the talent opposing me was not as good as I thought it was. And I didn't realize that until maybe 10 years after my Cape Town experience. But it's because Dave had those big dreams and sent those clippings that, that I ended up uh, over there. To talk about Jim Kidman, the sports writer, I sent a couple of clippings home. And my dad wrote me back and he said, is this a real newspaper? It was just <laughs> hilarious. He thought that I'd gone to like a Coney Island type place and made pretend headlines and a story and so forth. And it's been, I think Dave would agree. It's because of Mr. Kidman that the game really took off. He was really an advocate for the game. He thought it was uh, America at its best. And, and Dave and I were two of the lucky, the lucky recipients. It's funny we're talking about this because I've been uh, uh, emailing Jim's son, who's, I guess, in his 50s now, uh, just out of the blue, I got a note from from Hugh Kidman, and I said, <laughs> "I met you when you were 16 months old, you know, in 1973. <laughs> he was the baby boy in the cradle." Uh, but the Cape Town experience all started because of Dave, and from there, uh, I, I, as I said, I stayed for two or three seasons. I went back to the U.S. I got a chance to play for some teams over here. One of which we talked about before we went on the air was the the fabled Portland Mavericks uh, who were uh, featured in the battered bastards of baseball documentary that Netflix is still running 10 years later. It was the actor, Kurt Russell and his dad owned a minor league team. Anybody could try out. So my dad had sent me a copy of a clipping talking about the Mavs. He sent the clipping from Connecticut to, uh, to Cape town. Uh, I came back to New York I did a month's worth of substitute teaching and went out to Portland, Oregon to see if I could continue my baseball life. Now, remember now, I'm 26, 27 years old. I still think I'm a late bloomer. I didn't go out to play for the Mavericks for the fun of it. I went out there to be to win 10 or 12 games in a half season and have the Yankees <laughs> buy my contract so I could be the next Whitey Ford. I mean, I still had big, preposterous dreams when I was 27 years old. And, uh, and 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 then then it then it really gets a little bit wacky for me because I didn't pitch very much with the Mavericks. I did start a baseball day camp there called the Little Maverick Baseball School, which paid my bills. But as luck would have it, in the uh, summer of 1977, in July, one month before I won my only game in three years with the Portland Mavericks, by the way, uh, summer of '77 was a good year for me because. That's when I came up with the idea for shredding bubblegum, putting it in a pouch, and calling it Big Lake Chew. And that's another story altogether. I mean, I went from being a wannabe baseball player to a guy who got a chance because of Dave Lutz. I ended up going from Cape Town to Connecticut to Portland, Oregon. And I end up owning a small bubblegum business. And Dave loves this as much as I do. That It's in western New York just outside of Buffalo, the Big League Chew Factory. And uh, I don't know what would have happened if Dave didn't send that note to his dad and said, you know, this is a pretty good opportunity. Find a guy who can who can enjoy it the way I did. So when I say that Dave Lutz changed my life, uh, I mean that most sincerely. The single most important guy in my almost 75 years on this planet. So thank you, Dave.
Well, hold on a second here. <clears throat> I'm got. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Uh, uh, I, you know, getting a percent of these big, big league two shares would be nice. But anyway, I've mm. only. Anyway, no, not not <laughs> in 1975 though. We were both, Rob and I were both at uh, Lions Stadium in the place called Seapoint, which is a suburb of Cape Town, which was the main stadium. And I do remember, now maybe I've got it wrong, maybe I dreamed it, but I do remember you telling me that uh, you and um, Jim Bowden have been talking. I don't know if it's true, but you talked to me about the concept of Big League Chew, the idea. Not that you were going ahead with it, but you just kind of bounced the idea off me. And I think I told you it wouldn't work, but I may be wrong. Uh, well, a uh, lot of a lot of people told me the idea wouldn't work. <laughs> it's a funny thing when you've got no really great alternatives. By that time in 77, uh, I really had no plans after the season was over. As luck would have it, before Big League Chew happened, uh, I got a job in advertising with the Jugs Baseball Pitching Machine Company. Uh, so my whole life revolved around the game of baseball, whether it was coaching kids or pitching for a great club uh, or or selling pitching machines and radar guns to help other coaches become uh, enamored with the joy of the game. Uh, to me, uh, when I get to talk with elementary school kids or high school kids about how did the whole thing happen, uh, my, my simple answer is I, I, I just kind of pursued what I thought made sense. And I was lucky. My dad was uh, NYPD. My mom was a mom. I had two older brothers. I had a lot of mentors to who never boo-hooed uh, or poo-pooed, rather, what I wanted to do. They said, sure, Rob, give it a shot. And uh, Dave was just right time right place i mean we both can't believe our luck and yeah. so much fun that we had i really think my brother harry had said to me when he, he was telling friends in a local pub in uh, on long island about my baseball life and they said D did he ever make it to the big leagues and he said not by a long shot but every country rob went to uh england south africa australia and then in the u.s rob always led the league in fun and that, that's absolutely right. And again, it all goes back to Dave Lutz having an idea that somebody else could have as much fun as he did, and he wanted to share the goodness. Uh, it, it's it's I don't know who's going to play Dave in the movie, but it's a pretty cool story. Uh, Don, I've got to tell you a quick story about this that, that follow on. This is that was a good segue. If this is okay, we were when Rob and I started kind of making. Uh, a, a mark. Was, sorry, one quick preface to this. Rob was the first guy in the history of South African baseball, and it'd been going on 20 or 30 years before we got there. Uh, he's the first guy in the history of baseball there that wore white spikes. And, <laughs> and, and it was, it was a big hit. Not, but added to that, Rob, you said he's the author, he's the, you know, the master of fun or whatever. He was also the guy that introduced, instead of BS into the vocabulary of, a, of shouting at an umpire, he introduced horse into the vocabulary. So it was HS. And uh, everybody wondered, what did he say? And, the, and our, you remember old Husky, uh, Rob, Husky Huskinson, he was one of the big loud umpires. He kind of said to, I heard later, he said to one of his friends, or to the catcher, Willie Jacobs, actually, he said, what did he, what did he say? You know, <laughs> anyway, so... 
Because the happened? term horse bleep wasn't really used over there. No, no, it wasn't. No, BS was if used. I, if I remember horse. correctly, let me interrupt you. If I remember correctly, Willie Jacobs was very fluent in Afrikaans, oh, and, yeah. and he, he said horse manure in Afrikaans. <laughs> and so I was off the hook. I was off the hook. The Portland Mavericks, the battered bastards of baseball, I absolutely love that nickname. Were the Mavericks in either the Pioneer or the Northwest League? We were interested. It's a great question. We were a, a member of the Northwest League. We were the an independent team in an affiliated league. Right. That is, was what is, I, I got. Which is illegal about. now. They can't, It's because of the Mavericks that they keep the independent teams away from the affiliated teams. When I'm up in Cooperstown, lucky for me, Big League Chew is the official bubblegum of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And I go up every late May for a clinic and an exhibition game with former major league players. And after one clinic, Ozzie Smith, the Hall of Fame shortstop, who played for Walla Walla in the Northwest League when I was a Mav in Portland, he said, Rob, the kids are more excited to go to right field and learn how to blow bubbles from Coach Rob mm-hmm. than they are catching ground balls with me at shortstop. And we both just, just laughed. I said, you know, Ozzie, it's all in the fun. And he's an absolutely great guy. He also asked me, he said, did the Mavericks have a smoking section in their dugout? <laughs> Which is pretty funny. Tells you a little bit about how crazy the Mavs were. But yeah, again, the, right time, right place. I can't explain it. A decade later, 1990, going into 91, I went to the winter meetings with my broadcast partner, Jim Lucas. There, The jobs that were available for broadcasters, one was in the Pioneer League and one was in the Northwest League. We no got, kidding. We got offered both of them. We got offered Pocatello and we got offered Boise in the Northwest League. And then a great man, I'm sure you know the name, Mike Vec. Yes. Know, he, he had given us a quote unquote audition. We weren't supposed to use that word, you know, the year before. So we'd done a broadcast on his radio station. And he wrote in at the end of January 1991 and, and gave us the chance to broadcast in Pompano Beach. So wow. I, I ask you, Boise, Idaho, or Pompano Beach, Florida, hmm, how do you decide that? Oh, <laughs> oh that's terrific. That's Boise. a great story. You know, I just wanted to say one thing when you talked about your parents allowing you to go to Marietta, Ohio. My first year in college was in Marietta, Ohio. I got to pitch alongside the great Kent Tocolvi, who had a great career with the We Are Family Pirates. And small town Ohio just didn't work for me. Plus, Don Shally, the coach at Marietta, had said, Rob, I'm glad you're coming. I really need left-handed pitching. And on the first day of practice, there were seven other guys who heard the same speech. So I didn't get too many innings at Marietta. The highlight of my year there was I got to pitch against Mike Schmidt, uh, a freshman game. He was at Ohio U in Athens, the same school that offered Dave Lutz a scholarship. So it all comes back in, in one big loop. For the record, yeah. Schmidt went 0 for 4. And then in his biography, he t- talks about how he didn't learn to hit until he was a junior in college. And and I can verify that because the fact that Mike Schmidt went 0 for 4 against me is just uh, off the chart preposterous. And a great guy. I met Mike Schmidt later on, much, much later. Now, you're, I'm, you're, you have had quite a bit of experience with one of my favorite baseball players, one of my favorite baseball men. I got to meet him briefly 
I've read his book, Bowl Four, I don't know how many times. <laughs> Jim Jim Bowden, tell me how it began and tell me how it progressed. The Jim Bowden story between him and me is so much fun. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't get a, a whiff from any professional team after college. And I was uh, practicing throwing knuckleballs, again, going to grad school <laughs> in Ithaca, New York. And I wrote to Jim in New York City. This was 1972, I guess. And uh, he was doing TV in New York. And I wrote to him and I told him that I'd, I'd pitched to Cornell. I didn't have enough uh, on the fastball. I've been working on a knuckleball. Would he mind if I drove down to Teaneck, New Jersey? Because for some reason, I knew he lived down there. And... Uh, and could we get 15 minutes? He could show me a few things about the knuckleball. And he wrote back to me and he said, meet me at this park in Teaneck and, and I'll give you 10 or 15 minutes. I go down there. We shake hands. We throw knuckleballs for an hour. So fast forward to 1975. I had my first stint in South Africa. I go out to Portland. Uh, I'm a bench player with the Portland Mavericks. In midseason, they signed Jim Bouton. Jim walks into the clubhouse. And I said, Jim, you probably don't remember me. We threw knuckleballs together at, uh, I forget the name of the park in Teaneck, New Jersey. He said, Rob, I remember you. But my memory is I threw knuckleballs and you tried to. <laughs> we, I love it. And we, and we became fast friends. He played for, for half of that season. Then he came back again in the summer of 1977. And uh he was one guy I shared the idea with in the bullpen. And to tell you a little bit about Jim Bouton, whose nickname, of course, on the field was the Bulldog. Yeah. Very tenacious guy. Very intense. When I told him about Big League Shoe, he said, Rob, I could sell that idea. He said, I love it. He said, what would you call it? Because by then I didn't have a name at that time. And my response to Jim was a question. I said, I don't know, Big League Chew? I mean, I picked it right out of the air. And Jim's eyes got as big as baseballs. He said, that's pretty good. And uh, so so, so there it was. I, I have to say one other thing about the origins of Big League Chew. There's a writer-director in Hollywood. His name is Todd Field. He's not quite 60. He was a bat boy with the Portland Mavericks. In Portland, Oregon, of course, he was 13 years old. He was a kid as an 11-year-old in the Little Maverick Baseball School. And he loved the coaches. He loved the team. And he talks about it in the Battered Bastards of Baseball, how he tried out, just like 300 guys trying to make the team, he tried out to become a bat boy, and he got the job. But I have to say, and it's now on the story on the back of the pouch now, which we revised for this year, uh, the truth of the matter is Todd used to take a pair of scissors and slice up licorice and put it into a red man pouch so he could look like a cool dude out on the field. He was trying to meet other 13-year-olds uh, in the stands. He thought the girls would be impressed with that. And I didn't know Todd was doing that. I said, what are you doing, kid? You're 13 years old. And he said, relax, Rob. It's licorice. It was maybe a month later when he and I had the discussion. I said, Todd, kids don't chew licorice. I said, your, your idea might work if it were bubblegum. And he said, yeah, maybe. And we both just blew it off. We didn't really think that we were onto anything. It was just two guys talking baseball, just, just goofing around. And then I let the thing massage in my head a little bit. And uh, 
And then sure enough, I, I come up with the shreds and the bubblegum thing and so forth. Todd and I are still fast friends. His film Tar was up for Best Picture last year with Kate Blanchett. He's been his films have been nominated for 12 Oscars. He hasn't won one yet. He's feeling like the Portland Maverick of Hollywood. <laughs> but he's uh he's an absolutely awesome guy and a really good friend. And you know, people talk about, uh, did you ever think of inviting Todd into into the business? And Todd interrupted when somebody asked that question. He said, by this time, he says, I'm 17 years old. It would have ruined my life. He said, I went to drama school. I went to community college. I played the trombone. He said, Rob and I had different paths, but he opened a lot of doors for me, and I opened one for him. And his perspective is exactly the way uh, I look at it. There, there are just wacky stories of him getting through high school and all the angst of that. And a lot of nights he spent at my apartment because his, his life was kind of out of control. But there are two guys, nobody, when you talk, if they make a Maverick movie, and maybe Todd will be the guy who makes the Maverick movie, the fact that a Bat Boy became more famous than any of us, ex with the exception maybe of Kurt Russell, is Bing Russell, um, they, uh, he rests in peace, is smiling down there because it's pretty ironic that the big dude on the Mavs uh, never played a lick. He just was the Bat Boy. On the Baseball Lifer podcast, Rob Nelson's been talking on the show, our other guest, Dave Lutz. And Rob, I got to tell you, Jim Bouton, when I, I sent a whole bunch of uh, cassette tapes and questionnaires to Hall of Famers, not Hall of Famers, and guys my partner and I just happened to like, and one of those was Jim Bouton. And he sent us, instead of filling out the questionnaire, he sent us a tape recording of one of his speeches where he talks extensively, not just about his career, but about later on coming up with Big League Chew. And one of, these, great. one of these Fridays, when I don't have a guest, I'm going to play that speech for our audience so they get to hear it. How long were you connected with Jim Bouton and the big league shoe concept. Jim and I were partners for 20 years. Uh, he wanted to expand the brand. He wanted to get into big league, other products, sunflower seeds, root beer, caramel corn, and so forth. And my vision of big league chew was that we were like the company WD 40. They make one product, you know, the WD 40 company out of San Diego makes one lubricant and they never expanded. And the biggest expansion Big League Chew has had, you can now get bubblegum balls that are the same texture as, as, as Big League Chew. They're not shredded, but it's the same recipe. And that's my idea of line extension. And Jim and I had a, a very different philosophic bent on it. And uh, the, the end of it was we very amicably uh, split. I bought him out. And uh, and he moved. Uh, he was doing public speaking and doing a lot of other things. And unfortunately, the idea for Big League Other Products really never gained a toehold. And Jim, being the guy he is, he said, you know, you bet on the right horse. And uh, he said, I, I should have listened to you. I was kind of like his kid brother. We were 10 years apart. You know, he was 38 with the Mavs when he was playing single A ball. And, and, and I was 28 in the summer of 77. Having said that, Jim Bouton at 38 pitched well enough that Ted Turner let him go to spring training. Uh, in 70 the spring of 78 
He's 39 years old. Uh, interestingly, the same age as Ted Turner. And he does well enough to play, to make the double-A team uh, in Savannah, Georgia. He goes 12-8. and eight. He gets called up to the big club for one month of Major League Baseball in uh, the fall of 1978. He wins a few games. It's just preposterous. He hadn't been on a big league mound for eight years. And he did it. And, and when the season the ended, he... In this, when the season ended, he surprised all of us. He said, you know, I did that. I proved I could do it, and I'm done. I thought, sure, he was going to go back to spring training in, in 79 and become, you know, like Hoyt Wilhelm, who I think was 48 when he finally left the game. Right on. But Jim, if Jim had a flaw, it's that he was too curious. He was juggling so many balls at so so many times. And, uh, and yet, as a friend, as a business partner – Again, on the Mount Rushmore of the Big League True Story, it's uh, Dave Lutz and Jim Bouton are two of the guys who were on there because their impact is just, I can't even measure it. I can't even begin to say. I will say this. When Jim passed away, I was visiting my brothers on Long Island, and I had to drive up to the Berkshires uh, in Great Barrington where there was the memorial service. And I didn't take the ferry over from the east end of Long Island. I took my car all the way through New York City and, and wound my way up into Western Mass because I had the audible version of Ball Four. And the reader is Jim Bounton. So for five hours, Jim read to me as I'm going up to his memorial service. And I went up and gave him, I don't know, eight or 10 minute speech, no notes. And Jim's widow came up and said, how did you do that? I said, Jim coached me for five hours before I got up mm. here. And, and you know, uh, I was going to mention it was, that. It was so much fun. I was there with John Thorne, the baseball historian, who had a very uh, uh, detailed uh, uh, speech on Jim's impact on the game and what a great guy Jim Bouton was. And then I was like comic relief after that because there are a lot of great things in Jim's book that related to my friendship with Jim, the Portland Mavericks, and just basically what a carefree spirit Jim was, but also what a compassionate guy and what a really good dude he was. You know, the fact that he sent you that speech doesn't surprise me. When I went to go have a 10-minute catch with him and it turned out to be an hour, it, it, it surprised me at the time. But the more I got to know Jim, uh, it was uh, no surprise to me. It's kind and generous and irreverent. Uh, I miss him every day. And for um, me, the best part of the audio version of Ball Four with him reading it is after all those years from the 60s to when he made the recording, he was still laughing at the material that he wrote. And it was funny enough without him laughing. That just made it that much funnier and that much funny. better of an experience. It's funny that you say that because I told Paula, his wife, I said, you know, the great thing about the Audible edition when the author is reading it is that they're kind of reliving the stories. And she said, Rob, I co-produced that production and the professional guy was about to hit the stop button and say, Jim, let's do that paragraph again. And she said, maybe a half a dozen times I grabbed the fellow's wrist and, and her line was great. She said, leave him alone. He's on a roll. Like he was John Belushi in Animal House. You know, he's on a roll. And the fact that not only he laughs at the part about Mickey Mail doing this or that and everything, but when he and when he talks about the story of losing his daughter Lori, it's so heartfelt and the pain that he's mm -hmm. reliving, and he just soldiers on and he gets through it. And it it changes you when you hear Jim Bouton reading that. 
The interesting thing about the Audible edition was that Paula badgered him to get the damn thing done. And <laughs> and she said, you never know what's going to happen, Jim. Get it finished. And it was maybe two months after he completed the Audible edition that he had his first stroke. He would not have been able to complete it. So we have Paula Kerman, Dr. Paula Kerman, to thank for how great uh, the audible edition of Ball Four is. I think anybody who loves baseball should listen to that book. I, I, I just I had another trip from Portland, Oregon to Long Island. Long story why I was driving cross country. I did stop along the way to see the Lutz family in St. Louis, so that was another bonus. But I did listen to the book again, and it, it's just powerful stuff. He's such a good man, and and you know his book is in the uh, the New York Times most one hundred most important books of the last century came out in 2001 they listed it and ball four is in there i think it's the only sports book that's in there as david haberstam said th this is not a sports book this is a book about america this is a sociological uh, uh essay that it should be read by everybody i'm i'm you know, paraphrasing halberstam uh, i've got the nerve to do that but halberstam said that this is this is more than a sports book this is important pretty cool Hey, Don, I'd like to... Sorry. Yeah, Dave, go. You no, know, I wanted to just a quick segue from there on two things. One, when I went to South Africa, uh, Don, uh, Ball Four was the first book that I read. Uh, my father sent it to me from the U.S. as a birthday <laughs> present. And of I course, was, the time is perfect. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, and it was so funny and so good. And I went away... That went away in my heart and head. I said, "Boy, I would love to write like that someday." Not least because it's authentic and real and and funny. Uh, there was nothing f contrived about it at all. It really, really had an impact on me. But also then to comment, you know, on Rob Nelson's ability to market an idea. Sometime in seventy, I don't know, it was the season of seventy three, seventy four. Must have been by the time we had sort of hit the headlines. A lot of other Americans were arriving in Cape Town, especially, well, in South Africa, but especially Cape Town. And by the time of that, whatever month it was, of the nine uh, player, best players in the province for the for the Western province team, seven of them were American and one of the and the American and the coach was American. So Rob decides because we want to raise some money to go on our tour, <laughs> Rob decides that he's going to promote a game that says the best seven Americans, the best, our seven can beat the best other nine you can put together. And so Rob organizes this event as a fundraising thing. He gets the ambassador to throw out the first ball. I persuade <laughs> a friend to get an American flag that we hang behind the dugout. He got 48 special... stars on that flag. I, I know. It only had 48. <laughs> <laughs> and he got special uniforms with USA across it. He got girls in hot pants to run around the bases and sweep off the bases between innings. I mean, it was the biggest hot dog show I have ever been part of. And Rob was the starting pitcher. Why you stuck me at first base, I have no idea. I've never played there in my life. And look, <laughs> But it was a big deal. We got a lot of publicity. Jim Kidman, the, New York, uh, the uh, Cape Times reporter, was you know right on it. Uh, it was a really, really big deal. And uh, Rob got his butt kicked i'm sorry did i say that no he he should have called me in in the fifth inning and i could have replaced him because i you know i've saved his bacon before but um it was a really fun 
It's a that's really a true, true, that's a true story. It's like my brother Harry describes my Portland Maverick three year career. He said Rob pitched briefly and ineffectively for three years, <laughs> uh, but the but the owner liked him, so uh, he, he got to stick around. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. Rob, since your time in South Africa, you said you spent some in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. Has baseball sustained down there? Have they played in the World Baseball Classic. Oh, Are they yeah. going to play in the World Baseball Classic? Yeah, yes, they have. It was interesting, of course, when I went there uh, in '73. It was the apartheid era, uh, but we had a, we had a, a manager, Brian Lombard. We'd go into the yeah. townships and do clinics in the black community, and we could see the talent was there. When I went back ten years later in the early '80s, half my teammates were black guys, and it was the same club. It was still varsity old boys. They had merged with one of the uh, one of the black teams in the Cape. When I went back in the early 90s, I was one of three white guys on the team. And the fun factor was exactly the same. The the VOB uh, way of doing things, the sense of community, sense of fair play, just the greatest guys. Just an absolute wonderful experience. I'm still in touch with a bunch of those guys. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's 50 years later and it, it seems like six months ago. We've had... Dave. Sorry. No, sorry. The thing is that South Africa has entered the world championships. I mean, I was selected in 70, 70 as, as a Springbok, which was a national club, yeah. but I hadn't been in the country long enough and didn't qualify. I wasn't a resident. But the year, a couple of years later, they went off to Europe and played in the big classic competition there. And I think they did quite well. And I believe a couple of times since then they've won. So uh, there were some really outstanding players when we were there. Very big surprise. Um, and uh, But fun to work with. Absolutely. The hunger, the desire to, to just have fun and enjoy the game and do it well, it was exceptional. Nothing, nothing like it. We've been talking to a couple of guys who played the game in South Africa and one who got involved with Jim Bouton and Big League Chew and Dave Lutz and Rob Nelson. Guys? Thanks a lot for joining me on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don, this is terrific. Thanks for the opportunity. Real blessing and a real privilege. Thank you, Don. When we come back, we'll have a word about next week's Baseball Lifer podcast. That's what you'll hear if you keep it right where it is. I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down. And I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860.
8860 CourtlandComputerServices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back with you on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don Wardlow here. And that was certainly fun talking to Dave and Rob about their baseball experiences in distant South Africa and Rob's connection with Jim Bouton. And as I said during the interview, one of these Fridays, if I don't get a guest, I'm going to play the recording Jim Bouton sent me. Meantime, for next week, I am working on getting guest Rich Marazzi. If that works out, he'll be our guest. If not, you may hear Jim Bouton talking about his life and career in and out of baseball. Until then, this is Don Wardlow for the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Have a good week. (laughs) 